into For the Record the 70s. This is the place where we take a deep dive into the intersection of the music, politics, and culture of the 1970s. This is Amy, your host for this one-woman, one-mic show. In this episode, we will look at the relationship between music and sports in the 1970s. I should clarify, this is not entirely a one-woman, one-mic show today, as I did interview Desi Crawl, who will share some of her thoughts and wisdoms about one of my favorite 70s and 80s activities, and one that is still quite popular today, roller skating. But first, thank you if you are returning, if you are already a part of the FTR 70 community, and thank you for hitting play if you are, you're just here to give the podcast a try. I do appreciate all the emails and voicemails and certainly the financial support. If you're wondering how you can help keep the podcast rolling along here, in addition to being a listener, uh, there are other ways that you can do that. Certainly sharing any episodes that you like with people that you may think like it can help. You can always leave a five-star review on your podcast app, which does help others find the show. You can kick in some cash if you want to help pay for hosting fees, research database subscriptions, uh, help keep the ads away, that sort of thing. Just go to FTR70.com, click on any podcast episode, and then click on any of the patron links. Music and sports, two of my favorite things. There is a synergy between music and sports. One often enhances the other, informs the other. Or in the case of music, can offer a tribute to the other. Uh, Such was the case with Black Superman by Johnny Wakelin and how Muhammad Ali moved him to write a song that celebrated him. I talked about that back in episode 33, I believe it was, uh, when I did an episode on Zaire 74. Zaire 74 was the music festival that was held in conjunction with the boxing match between Muhammad Ali and George Foreman, more commonly known as the Rumble in the Jungle. Now that was a rather lighthearted tribute, the Johnny Wakelin song about Muhammad Ali, a little more so, definitely more so than Bob Dylan, who turned to his folk singer roots in 1975, And he wrote a protest song about the wrongful murder conviction of professional boxer Reuben Hurricane Carter. The song is called Hurricane. The song never really gained any traction, not because it's a bad song, it isn't, but by 1975, we were about worn out on protesting. I've discussed this in several previous episodes. There was so much turmoil in those previous 10 years by the time that Dylan wrote that song, that we were collectively tired. Some people, like columnist Mike Cleveland, just didn't know what to do with a song that protested police behavior. He wrote an article for the Herald News in New Jersey in 1975, and he said that Hurricane is a good song, but that Dylan should have interviewed someone from the other side, and that Dylan was paranoid about, quote, a police state. So... The climate for protest songs was much different in 1975 than it was in 1965 or even in 1971 or 72. Music and sports are both at the heart forms of entertainment, and they both appeal to us on an emotional level. So when they come together, there is an effect that is even more powerful. Ken McLeod, who is an educator and researcher on popular music history and culture, 
writes about this at length, this, this synergy in his book called We Are the Champions, The Politics of Sports and Popular Music. In it, he points out that it's not just in the way that may seem more obvious, such as how music can enhance a sporting event for the audience or actually be part of a sporting performance. You know, figure skating comes to mind immediately. But how music and sports act together to help create identity and community. What does that mean? Well, consider how some music might to you feel more masculine or feminine. That would be something like the difference between watching highlights of Nadia Comaneci's Perfect 10 in the 1976 Olympics to the gentle sounds of the Cotton Dream, now known as Nadia's theme, versus Queen's We Will Rock You. Consider also how some forms of music have been made part of a sporting culture like just about any college or university with its fight song. Now, the relationship between music and sports obviously predates the 1970s. I'm not here to make the case that the 70s invented this, not by any stretch of the imagination. It predates even the 20th century. The link between music and athletics goes back to ancient Greece, which was also a time when athletes were worshipped as heroes and held considerable influence in their local politics in their city-states. Paying attention to athletes because of something more than their athletic performance, you say? Well, let's just say the more things change, the more they stay the same. A little closer to the 1970s in ancient Greece, Memphis Minis sang the Joe Louis Strut in 1935 in honor of heavyweight boxing champion Joe Louis. In fact, there are over 40 songs about or inspired by him. And what about this song from 1956? I love Mickey Mickey who? You know who, the fellow with the celebrated swing Oh, I love Mickey Mickey who? You know who, the one who drives me batty every spring If I don't make it hmm, Kind of catchy. Uh, Teresa Brewer and New York Yankees great Mickey Mantle recorded the single I Love Mickey, which is an ode to the Yankee Hall of Famer. Mickey got another mention, by the way, in a 1981 song that I loved, Talkin' Baseball by Terry Cashman. I especially loved that my baseball hero, George Brett, got a shout-out as the greatest on that one. A closer look at the 70s, though, does show that sports and music have a very multi-dimensional relationship. These were not all songs about tributes to idols, like Wakeland's uh, tribute to Muhammad Ali and of course, there was music that was never intended to be part of a sporting event, but then actually really becomes part of sporting culture because it enhances the experience for the crowd. Two that come to mind right away are Rock and Roll Part 2 by Gary Glitter, which is still used to induce the crowd to shout, hey, um, or the song that I only knew as the Na Na song in my younger days, a band that never really ever existed called Steam is credited with recording Na Na, Hey, 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 Kiss Him Goodbye in 1969. Although it's not quite as simple as that. Kiss Him Goodbye was written by Gary DiCarlo, Paul Lecco, and Dale Frazier a few years earlier. It was supposed to be kind of this throwaway B-side of a 45 for Gary DiCarlo. I say throwaway because when records made their way to radio DJs, singers and bands, they usually didn't want the B-side to be too good. They didn't want the DJ to have a reason to turn the record over and steal the thunder from the A-side. 
None of it worked out the way that DiCarlo thought it would, and there are many twists and turns to how it ended up being a hit for a fictional group. My source list on FTR70.com has a link to a Rock and Roll Universe video in which you will find an interesting interview with DiCarlo on that whole saga if you want more details. It is unfortunate, I think, that DiCarlo never did get a hit under his own name. Now, a check of the lyrics of the Na Na song tells that this is clearly a love song. Well, it's a breakup song that has zero to do with sports. He'll never love you the way I love you, because if he did, no, no, he wouldn't make you cry. I want to see you kiss him, want to see you kiss him, go on and kiss him goodbye. But that is not the part of the song that has become famous, at least not in the sports world, this is. November 1969, Na Na Hey 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 Kiss Him Goodbye was number one by December 6th, and it stayed there for a couple of weeks. I actually thought that maybe uh, some of the members of the Wrecking Crew, the legendary session musicians, helped out with the background, but nope, it was just to Carlo, Lecco, and Frazier. And that Na 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 Hey Hey Hey, is it's just filler. As Tom Bryan points out in his Stereo Gum column about this song, it's actually barely a song, or maybe it just seems that way because of the chant and its association with sports, especially with baseball. In the 1970s, some baseball fans began to complain about the organ music that was uh, being played during the games, which had been a tradition going back to the 1940s. These fans said that the organ music was a distraction from the game itself. Enter Nancy Faust, the organist for the Chicago White Sox for 40 yes, 40 years, who was at that time seven years into her job when she first played this song at a game between the White Sox and the Kansas City Royals. Kansas City manager Whitey Herzog came out to remove his pitcher from the game. Now, Nancy was already known for interjecting contemporary songs into the right moments in the game, which was not a commonplace thing to do at that time. I should point out here also that very few stadiums actually still use live human beings uh, who play the organ during games. Mostly it's pre-recorded music now. Will I sound too middle-aged if I also say that the music's too loud? Yeah, okay, I do. So I, I didn't. I didn't say that. Now, Nancy Faust doesn't read music. So she would just buy the 45 of a pop or rock song that she thought would work at the ballpark, and then she would listen to it over and over again until she learned it, and then she kept it in her arsenal for the right moment. So when Whitey Herzog came out to get his picture, she was ready, and as she played, the fans sang along, and the rest is history. It has become a chant that's so ingrained in the sports world 
I don't think that a lot of people even realize that it actually comes from a song. Of course, the point of playing songs like this, or Sweet Caroline, or Thank God I'm a Country Boy, or Crazy Train, or whatever, is crowd engagement. None of these songs, including the Na Na song, have anything to do with sports. At least they were not intended to, but of course they enhance the experience. That's what makes the double A-side rock classics We Are the Champions and We Will Rock You such an important part of this cultural intersection. Freddie Mercury wrote uh, We Are the Champions, specifically with soccer or football, depending on where you're listening to this, in mind, just as Brian May wrote We Will Rock You to be a similar anthem. Now, Ken McLeod pointed out that he thinks it's interesting that Freddie also included some lines that the gay community could argue is talking to them, uh, lines like, I've done my sentence but committed no crime, while in the midst, midst of what could also be argued is a hyper-masculine song. In fact, Ken McLeod does argue it's a hyper-masculine song. This is what I think about that. Uh, hyper-masculinity, in my opinion, is not about sexual orientation. So to me, it can be all of these things at once. It can be a soccer anthem that has a nod to the gay community, of which Freddie was, of course, a part of. And it, it could also be a song that promotes hyper-masculine beliefs and behavior. With all that being said, my junior girls softball team blasted both of these songs at our local pizza parlor in the late 70s because we had just won our local rec league. And uh, we did that because the song fit the occasion. It was already a sports anthem. Both of the songs were already sports anthems. By becoming sports anthems, these both of these songs are also forever part of not just sports culture, but I'm going to argue even pop culture. Not everyone knows that Boston Red Sox fans sing Sweet Caroline at their home games, but everybody knows what this means. A big noise playing in the street Gonna be a big man someday You got mud on your face You big disgrace Kicking your can all over the place Singing We will, we will rock you A big disgrace Waving your banner all over the place We will, we will rock you Sing it Let's go, right? Everybody knows what that means, whether you have ever played a sport in your life. Uh, from the News of the World album in 1977, We Will Rock You and We Are the Champions was released as a double A-side single, and therefore they are typically played together on the radio. It has a feeling of defiance, and it has the requisite chorus that could be chanted at the top of your lungs. Was there a high school basketball team in the free world that did not blast We Will Rock You and encourage the requisite stomping on the bleachers in time with the hand claps? I think not. Brian May said of We Will Rock You in 2021, the thing I'm most proud of is that it became part of public life. 
So when anyone goes boom, boom, clap in any form whatsoever, that's what it is. The greatest compliment is when people think nobody wrote it. They just think it's always been there. So We Will Rock You has become traditional, like it goes back to the Stone Age, and that makes me happy. There is also this from the Bedford, Indiana Times-Mail in March 1978. A report on the Paoli High School boys basketball team, the Paoli Rams, winning their first sectional title in nine years. I quote, After the presentation of the trophy, the Rams took a victory lap to the theme song of the movie Rocky. This, along with We Are the Champions and We Will Rock You, filled the gym with stereo sound. Of course this happened. This was the 1970s. And if you didn't take advantage of all three of those songs in a sporting venue, you were not doing your job. Now, why Rocky? Well, the article goes on to say this. Throughout the season, the Ram team visualized itself as a Rocky who had worked hard but had still been overlooked. Note the term a Rocky, which refers to the underdog, as in the underdog boxer, Rocky Balboa, a character created on paper and brought to life on the big screen by Sylvester Stallone. It might be hard to envision this now, especially if you were not around in the 1970s, but Stallone himself was an underdog in that it took a lot of convincing to get United Artists to agree to make his movie because he insisted that he be Rocky. He wrote the screenplay, he created the character, and he wanted to be Rocky. So, of course, in the movie, Apollo Creed, played brilliantly by Carl Weathers, wins that fight, which then, of course, sets the stage for many sequels. But that Rocky loses the fight is not the point. It's that he works hard to make himself a contender. He gave himself a chance. He trains by running through the streets of Philadelphia as Bill Conti's Gonna Fly Now begins, kind of low-key at first, but growing more bold and, dare I say, triumphant as Rocky does one-armed push-ups and punches sides of beef, for Christ's sakes. The man is hitting meat. How do you not root for Rocky? up the steps of the Philadelphia Museum of Art and he's jumping up and down in triumph as his arms are raised above his head? Of course you can, because that is the power of the song. That's why the Philadelphia Eagles play it before every home football game. It signifies victory, but not the victory on the scoreboard or at the judges' table. It's the victory that comes from effort 
and facing fears, and maybe, just maybe, you'll win in the sequel. The song and the movie were released in February 1977. The movie went on to win a Best Movie Oscar, and the song went to number one on the Billboard Hot 100 right around the 4th of July in 1977. John Appleton, the director of Rocky, who also, by the way, won an Oscar, said that Bill Conti's film score is one big reason for the enduring place that Rocky has had in popular culture. In 2014, he said, without that score, I don't think we'd be here right now. That played a huge part in the emotional experience of the movie. And I agree 100%. You cannot separate the character from the music. They operate together to make something more powerful. In the same vein, but a very different type of song, is this. I was the only 70s kid doing leaps and twirls off my basement couch as Nadia's theme played in the background. Now, a decade later, I would associate this song with my favorite soap opera of the 1980s, The Young and the Restless. But before that, for me and many others, it meant Olympic glory and grace. Nadia's theme began its existence as Cotton's Dream, a song written by Barry Dvorzen and Perry Potkin Jr. for our 1971 movie called Bless the Beasts and the Children. While the movie's theme song was nominated for an Academy Award, which it lost to Isaac Hayes and the theme from Shaft, which is awesome, nobody paid much attention to Cotton's Dream until 1971 when it became the theme song to the aforementioned Young and the Restless. Please note that the Romanian gymnastic legend Nadia Comaneci never performed to Nadia's theme, at least not in the 1976 Olympics. Maybe in some other time, some other place she did. ABC used it as the musical background of this montage of highlights of her performances in the 1976 Summer Olympics from Montreal, and also for a rebroadcast of her perfect floor exercise, which I have to say is a bit ballsy to change out the music, but on the other hand, the music that Nadia actually used was not all that memorable. So if anyone out there um, who works for the Encyclopedia Britannica is listening in, please make that correction. 
Nadia was 14 years old that summer, and she won three gold medals. But more than that, she was the first gymnast to ever be awarded a perfect score of 10, which she did not once, not twice, not three times, but seven times. Now, not that she didn't deserve it, but who wanted to be the judge that did not give Nadia a 10 after she'd earned a perfect score like three or four times? Do you want to be that judge? I don't. At any rate, whoever it was at ABC Sports who decided that Cotton's Dream would make a good song to accompany highlights of Nadia made a fairly historic decision. A, because there was such a demand for the song that it was released as a single and made it all the way to number eight on the Billboard Hot 100 and it spent 22 weeks on the Billboard charts. But B, because of that synergistic relationship between what the home viewer witnessed from Nadia and how the song contributed to the emotional experience in the same way that Gonna Fly Now contributed to Rocky. And by the way, we will see something similar in the 1980s with the Ice Dancers Torval and Dean in the 1984 Winter Olympics. Do you remember what they did with Bolero? If you have no idea what I'm talking about, go on over to YouTube after you're done listening to this episode and dial up Bolero and Jane Torval and Christopher Dean because that is a perfect example of how music can interpret a story in an athletic performance. This integration of sport and music is not only found at the professional or Olympic level. It is also found in our everyday lives, in our pastimes and hobbies. Roller skating is a good example of this. Roller skating has a regional flair that in many ways is no different, I think, than language or food. In my small town USA upbringing in Nebraska, Skating was where the kids went for birthday parties and to try to play pinball while also trying to stay upright. I don't remember too many adults, and I don't remember too many trick skaters at all. There was, to my memory, no sliding or spinning. Fancy skating was skating backwards. And skates were white or this kind of ugly beige and just kind of clunky and funky. There were no custom skates. Still, music was part of the experience. And if the right song came on, it was as if it was physically pulling you around the rink. Most of us were never going to be in the Olympics or a solid gold dancer. But we could have our own three-minute performance right there in our hometown skating rink. True, sometimes the musical choices amounted to little more than simply playing the top 40. But if that, quote, right song came on, it was a lot more than that. Did anyone ever chant to Saturday Night by the Bay City Rollers at your skating rink? We did at mine. What happened when My Eyes Adored You by Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons came on? At my rink, that song set the mood for that slow couple skate. I wanted to dig more into the popularity of roller skating in the 70s and into the 80s, as well as the music that accompanied it. So I spoke with Desi Kral, who started the website skategroove.com in January 2000. This website posts all sorts of information about skating events, skating rinks, businesses that cater to roller skaters, and much more. Now, Desi has been skating since she was three. 
So suffice to say, she is more than a casual fan. She's told me that she started roller skating when her older sisters got her on those old Fisher-Price skates and those old metal skates that those of us of a certain age recall. Desi, who is originally from Ohio and now living in Arizona, and I talked about the 70s as an era in which most parents were not as concerned about their kids being out of their sight and the idea that the roller skating rink was a safe place for your kids to be without parental supervision. I asked her if she thought that this was part of the popularity of skating in the 70s. Yes, parents felt it was a safe thing. Um, you knew where your child was. You knew what exactly where they were. You knew they were inside of a building. Like, I used to ride my bike a lot through the neighborhoods and everything, but you never knew where I was from one point to another. But when your child goes skating, you know they are at the rink. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Roll Bounce, but that was... Um, a fictional depiction of skating in the 70s, a group of young boys who um, lived on, I believe, the south side of Chicago. And they knew that their parents set the rules. You can go to the rink. And, and actually, it, it reflects what I just said. They skated to the rink. They skated at home. But they knew they had to be back in the house before the street lights came on. That was the golden rule. That's when your parents would start worrying. If you were not home when those street lights came on, that's when you would get a spanking or whatever, get punished, reprimanded, whatever. Mm -hmm. So we all knew when the street lights come on, that's when to be home. So so the parents felt good about that. They know they knew what you were doing. Yep, that was the rule uh, for me and my friends too home before the street lights came on. It was not unusual, nor was it considered neglect to not know exactly where your kids were. We had transportation, we had feet, and we had bikes. We didn't schedule play dates either. We just showed up at a friend's house and asked if they could play. Either they could or they could not. Your mileage might vary on that, though. I grew up in a small town, so for better or worse, everyone in and around my neighborhood knew who I was. Of course, the music is an integral part of this experience. So I asked Desi her thoughts about the relationship between music and skating. Coming from Ohio, particularly Dayton, Ohio, Dayton, Ohio became the birthplace of funk. Okay. Um, there were a lot of funk bands who um, originated out of Ohio, out of Dayton. Um, for example, Roger Troutman and Zap, he was definitely from Dayton. I mean, it, it wouldn't be unusual to go to Kroger and see him in the grocery store. Um, Slave, Ohio players, Lakeside, Zap, Heat Wave, you know, they all were creating a, um, a music, a tone um, that, set, that set the tone for the 70s and that rolled into the 80s. And those songs that they would play became classics. Now, Although when you listen to the lyrics very closely, you realize really the scope of what they were talking about, but also the beat and then the lyrics secondly translated into what the, the feeling that you had on a skate floor. Mm -hmm. So the music again, sets the tone for whatever kind of artistic expression that your body paired with the melody. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of those songs just of that era just gave people a feel good 
uh, moment. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what skating did as well. So when you pair the music with the skating, you just feel good all around. And mm-hmm. you wanted that feeling all the time. And that's what made people come back consistently every week. the groove line not a skate anthem i know it's not pure funk those horns are pretty polished and there's a touch of disco in there but it's got the beat and the lyrics check out the wheels are turning you know we won't stop we got this boiler burning we're keeping it hot those lyrics seem tailor-made for the roller rink the groove line was released in 1978 and is by heat wave which as desi said has its roots in dayton ohio Johnny Wilder and his brother Keith Wilder were from Dayton and were co-founders of the band. Questlove said that the keyboardist and writer Rod Temperton, who is British and not from Ohio, was the spirit of the band. You might know some of the other songs he wrote, Off the Wall, Rock With You, and Thriller by one Michael Jackson. Temperton also was not ashamed to say that Heat Wave was a big part of the disco boom in Europe, And certainly there is going to be a happy marriage between disco and roller skating in the form of roller disco. In fact, I think some of the same things that fueled the rise in disco, which I have discussed in previous episodes, but especially the very first one, also fueled the rise in roller skating. There is this desire to escape. I asked Desi why she thinks that roller skating was so popular in the 70s among people who were not kids, because certainly it is and was not just an activity for children. She had some interesting thoughts on the popularity of skating, especially with African Americans. Um, I I did some thinking and some research about everything that went on the decade before in the 60s. -hmm. And from an African American perspective, you have to look at it like this. The assassinations that took place. Robert Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Megar Evers, Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. The 
things that all five of these men had in common is that they were for civil rights. You know, they were fighting for civil rights. And if you as a person of color see your leaders being assassinated one by one, it makes you lose hope Mm -hmm. in the future that anybody's going to be able to stand up and fight for you. And so I believe the 60s, leaving out of the 60s, came into the 70s where people needed something to make them feel good. And there was probably a lot of struggle, inner struggles people were having with mental health, um, just just a struggle with having a great outlook on whatever the future was going to look like because you just didn't know. I mean, even with Woodstock, you know, people wanted to feel good, you know? So going skating, knowing that you don't have to have a partner, it's a totally individual activity. Um, It's great to skate with other people, but you could also go go alone and be in your own thoughts. There was a song that was written specifically for roller skating called Bounce Rock Skate Roll by Von Mason. So I asked Desi about Von Mason and that song. It was a description of what it felt like to be on eight wheels, okay, in the roller rink. Um, and, And his music had a beat that you could skate to. And... And it, I think there were some songs, you know, around that same era that hit on roller skating as well, but it was something particular about this song and the way he put it together. It became like, if you're a skater, you know this song. Mm -hmm. Um, And and it crossed all lines. And um, it just became sort of like an anthem. And And we've been playing it ever since, even through the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, we're still playing this song. And as a matter of fact, when I was in the 70s, um, when they, that was a song they played at the end of the night to let kind of a signal like, mm-hmm. it's almost time to go home, Last call. Mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that was the song. But I'll tell you um, this short story real quick about how he left this world um, back in November of 2019, before there was great news about the COVID virus. Um, November 2019, we had an event, we had a skating event where it was mostly seasoned skaters. And we use that term seasoned instead of elderly or old or mm-hmm. anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, People in their 60s, 70s, 80s, um, well, I would just say 40 and up, came together in Washington. Well, it was actually Virginia, technically rest in Virginia, right on the Potomac. We were in the 31st, 32nd floor of a building that had an elevator on the outside of the building. So you can just have that sense of height as you ascend it to the 32nd floor. And then when you come out, it was like a round rotunda and um, had plate glass windows for, that covered the two floors. And it was an area that we had staged up for Von Mason. And he actually 
uh, performed that song with his son. And we didn't have our skates on at the time, but it was all roller skaters. Mm -hmm. And we formed a line, a train and danced all around him, around the rotunda and showed him so much love and how much we appreciated his contribution to our community. Um, and I believe that was his last performance live performance for roller skaters before he passed in April of 2020. from Bounce Rock Skate Roll from Vaughn, Mason, and crew. You know, Desi made the point more than once that I feel is important to reiterate here that roller skating never did go away. Uh, it was always there. She also mentioned a movie that you should check out if you want more information on this subject. United Skates with John Legend as executive producer is currently streaming on HBO. It's a fun and interesting look at the importance of skating, uh, specifically to many African-American communities, and the integration of hip-hop into skate culture beginning in the 1980s. Another sport that experienced a boom in the 1970s was tennis, and World Team Tennis was founded in 1973. One of those founders was Larry King, ex-husband of Billie Jean King. The World Team Tennis court is very distinctive. It has different color blocks, so you would know right away if you saw it on television or in a photograph. And men and women play on the same teams. The league still exists, but several of the teams folded in the first year due to some financial difficulties. The team with the best record in its first year was the Philadelphia Freedoms. They also had the best attendance. It did not hurt that Billie Jean King was player-coach. Elton John met Billie Jean King at Wimbledon in 1974, and they kind of became each other's groupies. I'm guessing that they bonded over more than tennis. It would not be too surprising if they also bonded over the fact that they did not feel safe in publicly stating that they are gay. 
Also, they seem to be lovely people. So there is that. Billie Jean went to a bunch of Elton's concerts, and he played mixed doubles with her in an exhibition match before a Freedoms game. He played daily while on tour in 1974 and participated in a two-week tennis camp at John Gardner's Tennis Ranch just down the road from where I'm recording this very podcast in Paradise Valley, Arizona. It attracted the likes of Johnny Carson, Clint Eastwood, and other tennis-playing celebrities. In fact, if you go to the Tennis Ranch website, which is now on the property of this swanky and very beautiful sanctuary, there's a photo of a smiling Elton and a smiling Billie Jean. Elton asked his songwriter extraordinaire, Bernie Taupin, to write a song for Billie Jean King called Philadelphia Freedom. So, Bernie wrote this. Philadelphia Freedom is more of a tribute to the city of Philadelphia than it is to the city's tennis team. The song is done in the mold of the Philadelphia sound with that R&B feel and the lush strings. In fact, Elton said it is, and I quote, black music. He said, I wanted the record to be a tribute to music that I like. I wanted it to come out like a funky black record. And it's crossed over into the black market now. And by black market, he means music. The lyrics don't allude to tennis at all, but rather Philadelphia as the cradle of freedom. We have the lyrics, Cause I live and breathe this Philadelphia freedom. From the day that I was born, I waved the flag. Philadelphia freedom took me knee high to a man, gave me a peace of mind my daddy never had. Across the state of Pennsylvania in Pittsburgh, in the summer and fall of 1979, we saw perhaps the best example of how an entire sports team becomes associated with the song and in many ways takes on the theme of that song. It started during a rain delay at a game in early June at Pittsburgh's Three Rivers Stadium. We Are Family by Sister Sledge played over the stadium PA, and as the song came to an end, 
Pirates legend Willie Stargell called up the press box. He told the PR director to announce that this was now the official clubhouse song of the Pittsburgh Pirates. The next thing you know, the scoreboard flashes a message that says, We Are Family, the official theme song of the 1979 Pittsburgh Pirates. That game was eventually played. Dave Parker hit a three-run home run in the bottom of the ninth to tie the game against the San Diego Padres. Then they won it with a bases-loaded walk, and the team was off. They were in fourth place in the National League East at that time, but four months later, the Pittsburgh Pirates were World Series champions, defeating the Baltimore Orioles four games to three after being down three to one. Now, Dave Parker was not so sure about We Are Family. He preferred Ain't No Stopping Us Now, but Willie Stargell was the leader of that team. The song title was on T-shirts. It was on signs. The team even stopped playing Take Me Out to the Ball Game during the seventh inning stretch and played We Are Family. The family was printed on top of the Pirates' dugout. They called themselves the family. If you watched baseball in 1979, whether you were a Pirates fan or not, you knew that this was the Pirates' song. Stargell said earlier, someone asked me if the family was overrated. He was referring to a Baltimore columnist who accused the Pirates of a, quote, cheap grandstand play and straining for attention. Stargell said on the night that they won the World Series, that bothered me because this person didn't didn't live with us and didn't see how much we depended on each other. There's really no words to put into the way I feel. We had to scratch, we had to crawl, and we did it together because we are family. We didn't mean to be sassy or fancy, but we felt the song typified our ball club. Sister Sledge, family, four sisters from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, didn't even know about the hoopla over their song until they happened to hear 50,000 people yelling the words to the song because the World Series was on a TV while they were on tour in Hamburg, Germany. Kim Sledge said they thought they were going to go back to the States 
especially uh, when the Pirates were down 3-1 to one to Baltimore, but then they had committed to playing in Brussels, so instead they sent a telegram. While many teams have theme songs, I can't think of too many up to that point at least that were as closely linked to one song and of equal importance teams that were linked to the messaging of that song. Jay Weiner, a longtime sports writer in Minnesota, wrote an article for the Minneapolis Star Tribune in 1981 about the Pirates and their iconic throwback baseball caps and how popular they were in Minnesota. Young African Americans were wearing the Pirates cap because of the number of black players on the Pittsburgh team. There were 15 black and Hispanic players on the 25-man roster for the 1979 championship team. Weiner pointed out that in Pittsburgh, they were not particularly popular with black people, and white people in Pittsburgh referred to them as the Homestead Grays, the name of the famous Negro League team from Pittsburgh. Weiner interviewed a 22-year-old African-American named Tracy Thompson, who worked at a Minneapolis community center. He pointed out the importance of the messaging of We Are Family to young black people on a national level. He said, The song We Are Family represents unity. The pirates represent that too. You know, we're all alike, but we're all different too. Do you understand? When one black achieves something that makes him world-renowned, we all feel we're a little part of it. Just watching someone like Willie Stargell on ABC, watching the Pirates win, clapping for them, we're supporting it. It's not like I'm glad that a black man did it instead of a white man. It's that I'm proud a black man did it. The lyrics of the song are not complex in the slightest. So on its own, the song is just the song. You like it or you don't like it. We are family. I got all my sisters with me. It's the song plus the success of the Pittsburgh Pirates and their embracing of the message that embodies the song's importance. Those that commit to making music and commit to playing sports often find that if they are successful, they are entertaining, they're making memories, and sometimes they're breaking hearts. After spending some time with this topic, it almost seems obvious that sports and music would have this kind of connection. Both are forms of entertainment, but I don't mean this as a demeaning comment. As music is front and center to many of our memories, so are sports. When you combine the two, you have created all at once an experience and ultimately a memory that harnesses the power of both. That is all for this episode of For the Record, the 70s. All of my sources are listed on ftr70.com. You can follow the show on Instagram at 70s Podcast or become a patron at ftr70.com. Thank you very much to Desi Crawl for being a guest on this episode, and thanks to you for listening. That's all for now. Bye, everybody. Bye.